morning, Northland. I love those questions. What makes you feel known and loved and who has made you feel that way? To know and to be known, to love and to be loved. We believe that is literally why we're here. That is a part of why we were created and a part of the mission that we've been given to spread that love. So we've been in this sermon series, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. Pastor Matt's been bringing the heat every week, inviting us into this new way of life. What it means to be alive in Jesus and how do we engage others in that? And it's such an important message because it can so easily be uh, misconstrued and end up being an empty task list of things we think we're supposed to go out and do, um, when in reality it's this mysterious interaction between who we are in our identity. I love the, the setup of the worship with Lori, who does God see you as, and Kaylee's prayer that, that we have a new identity in Christ. And it's out of who we be that we do. And out of who we be that we know and we are able to get access to truth. And so Pastor Matt has shown us this, this graph, this image of, of way, truth, and life. Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And in this, he's inviting us to see how the way is, is connected with doing and truth, thinking, and life being, and he's kind of challenged us that most of us as human beings, and also as denominations in the church specifically, will be drawn towards one, maybe two of these, but rarely all three. And that the risks that, are, um, um, that come when you only approach one or two of these, you're not experiencing the fullness of who Christ has called us to be. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. We're going to really focus in on this being part of it. Because engaging people could be a sentence that sounds like engaging people over there so that they become alive in Jesus, which is definitely part of what we mean in this vision statement that we've come to. But I've also, in preparation for this, been wondering a lot about this other way of saying it, like, I need to be an engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. In other words, I need to be fully alive myself. I can't give away something I haven't in fact received. It needs to have affected me for me to be able to come to you and engage you to give it to you. And so we're going to spend some time talking about what it's like to engage people. We're going to look at the life of Jesus and three groups of people he met with. But here's why I'm so passionate about this message. I think one of the reasons um, Pastor Matt asked me about it. Um, this idea of doing versus being. Doing in the engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus or being fully alive, which causes me to engage people. See, I have lived most of my life as a very good doer. I can do well. In fact, in the beginning of my ministry, my wife and I helped plant the Oviedo campus, and um, I could do a lot. And, and Pastor Dan was the lead pastor, and I was kind of doing all the other stuff he didn't want to do, uh, otherwise known as an associate pastor. And, uh, and we were going on a mission trip to Africa, and my wife and I went together. We got down there, and it's with a partner church from South Africa. And um, we're going to be continuing to build this school in Sateki Swaziland. And so 
we get down there and we're gonna build a school and I'm super pumped because there's lots to do. And so we arrive the first day and the partner church is uh, rooted in uh, Cape Town, Friedelist. And the woman who was kind of the point of contact for these kinds of trips that coordinated everything with, with Dan and Pastor Sean, her name was Heidi. And so we arrive and we're all sitting outside and they're giving us the assignments and it's kind of like on a whiteboard and telling us who's gonna be on what teams. And so they start talking about the construction team and I'm thinking this is clearly why I'm in Africa because this was made to pick things up and put it down. This is just kind of what I've done my whole life, right? I mean, I know I'm in Africa to pour concrete and dig stuff and build things. And she goes through the construction team and I'm not on it and I'm like, huh. And then she goes through another team, I'm not on it. She goes through another team and I'm like, well, this is weird. And she finally arrives at the home visit team and my name is on it. And I'm like, this was not made to just go to a house and sit with people. I do not understand what is going on. So I, I think there's a mistake. So I go to Heidi and to Dan uh, after we're all done. I'm like, yeah, I just, I feel like we're really not using my, you know, skill set here. Uh, going on home visits, I'm not really sure. And, and I can remember Heidi's face so, so clear. She just looked at me kind of confused. And she's like, well, I don't understand. We prayed over who's supposed to be on all these teams. And you are on the home visit team. And I'm like, okay, I'm a pastor. I'm definitely not going to argue with that. It seems like a good way to figure out who goes on what teams. So I go out on the home visit team. My wife's on the team. And we're just sitting with people. And I can't do anything about what's in front of me. Whether it was a family torn apart by AIDS, the intense poverty, malnutrition, lack of resources, no men around because they all leave to go get work and don't come back. I mean, I'm overwhelmed with all the things that I can't do anything about. And so I go to Pastor Dan when we get back to our, our camp that night. I pull him aside and I'm like, did you do this on purpose, man? Did you like tell Heidi? To do this, he's like, no, I'm not that smart. He goes, but I do think God is after something in you. Because you think the most valuable part of you in ministry with him is what you do. But maybe it's not. Now the irony is, 10 years later, that's actually all I do in ministry now. I sit with people as a counselor. I sit with them as a pastor in pastoral care and counseling and as a therapist in private practice. And oftentimes I can't do anything about what's going on in their lives. But what I can do is I can be with them. I can be with them. Withness, I think, is a pretty big deal. In fact, that was Jesus' name when he was born. They called him Emmanuel, God with us. He brought us his withness in a way that had not happened before Jesus' birth. He became God dwelling in creation with us. And although he absolutely accomplished his ministry and work that he wanted to do here, there were still a lot of people who were sick. There were still a lot of things that were wrong in the broken creation when he left. In fact, he says, trials and tribulations you will have in this world, but fear not for I have overcome it. See, it is broken. And there are some things we can do, absolutely. But who we be while we do them is maybe more important. And what we believe to be true might be transformed as we be something different. As we be dwelled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what we're going to see 
in these three groups of people that Jesus interacts with, that he engages with. So we're going to use the same layout, way, truth, and life, and we're going to focus on three groups of people. The first group of people is, we're going to call this the way group of people, and this is the group of people that Jesus calls his disciples, several scripture passages up there, and in each of these there's this similar theme. He kind of walks up onto their scene, right? He's like in their world. They're fishermen. He kind of comes alongside them, and I don't know how he does it. I wasn't there. Can't wait to watch the red box when we get to heaven, but he just simply says, come follow me, and they're like, okay. Now, in one of the stories, we get a little bit more where he walks up. They've been fishing all day. They come in. He gets in the boat. He starts teaching, and clearly, he'd been doing some ministry around them before this, so they've heard of this guy, but there was something about him that was engaging. There was something about him that drew them to him. Now, we know what that something is. It's the Father working through him. Jesus will tell us that later. We'll get to that. But there was something engaging about him. And then he engages them on a whole new way. He says, hey, I think you guys know what you're here to do, which is to be fishermen. But I'm here to tell you there's something completely else for you to do. And it's to be fishers of men. And you need to follow me to learn how to be that. You'll end up doing it, but you need to learn how to be that. So come and follow me. So this is the first group of people that he engages with himself, the way, the calling of the disciples. The second group is the challenging of the law. See, the truth, way, truth, and life, the truth is all about we know the truth. And so here are the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They're the experts of the truth. And they are absolutely confident that they know the truth. And so Jesus eats with them. There's three meals recorded in the book of uh, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. And these three meals challenge the, the experts of the law's understanding of truth. How does he do that? Well, he eats with them, kind of lowers defenses, right? Something happens when you eat with somebody. You, there's, a, there's a thing that's going on with us as human beings when we're breaking bread together. It's all over scripture, hospitality and eating. But he asks great questions. Oh, you've heard it said. You don't say. So in the first story, Jesus is um, having a meal with a, a religious leader, and this woman comes in, falls at his feet, breaks her, her jar of perfume and washes his feet, starts drying his, her, his feet with her hair. And the religious leader's like, what in the world? What, this guy must not be that great because if he was that great, if he was a prophet, he would know that she is a woman of sin and he wouldn't let her near him. And Jesus, who's engaging this guy by watching him, paying attention to the nonverbals, knows what's going on inside this guy's head and he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the, the religious leader is like, who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? He can't forgive sins? And where was the forgiveness of sins offered? It was in the temple. And who did you have to go to to get the forgiveness of sins? The religious leaders. And so here's Jesus at the dinner table taking the questioning of his understanding of truth, shaking it a little bit, making them nervous by asking good questions. The second story is the story of um, Luke chapter 11, when Jesus goes to eat dinner with a religious leader, and he goes through this whole long list of woe to you, the Pharisees. Not a great dinner guest. 
But what's fascinating about this story is in the very beginning, he doesn't clean his hands. And the religious leader notices he doesn't clean his hands and says, hmm, he must not be that good of a leader because he didn't even clean his hands correctly. And then Jesus goes into this, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You should go back and read it. It's really intense. But what's fascinating is he's challenging the purity laws. And basically in both of these stories, and then in the third one, where he heals a man on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders questioning him, how could you do this on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, I've often wondered if he occasionally went to the side of the mountain in the morning to pray just to say, what am I doing? This is crazy. These guys are a mess. Oh my goodness, can we just do this quicker? Is there like a quicker way to do this? He probably didn't do any of that, but that's what I would have done if I was Jesus. Luckily for all of us, I'm not. Um, but it's like he's shaking them. He's trying to poke, you guys think you know the truth, but you have used the truth to, to lord over others. You have used the truth to secure yourself in power. So we have to be willing to understand that maybe we don't hold the corner on the truth. Maybe he is the truth. In fact, he says this. One of my favorite passages, my wife talks about this all the time. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will find life. They all point to me, but you will not come to me. Oh, he's trying to shake them. Stop thinking you know the truth. I am the truth. And then, of course, we have life. This is where he connects with the people. So he connects with his disciples and offering them a new way. He connects with, his, with the leaders of the law by, by offering them a new way to think about the truth. Now, obviously, he's the way, truth, and life all the time. But we're just taking a picture of it um, this way now. So connecting with people, he enters into to, um, fellowship, oftentimes over a meal, right? We have Luke uh, 19, the story of Zacchaeus, and Matthew 9, where he meets Matthew and Levi, or Matthew, who is Levi, and and has dinner with him. And then, of course, John 4, the woman at the well that Pastor Matt has done such an amazing job bringing back at time and time again during this series because it's such a beautiful picture of engaging this woman in her story and inviting her to a new life. The woman caught in adultery, same thing in John 9, or John 7, this, this picture of offering life to someone else in a way that they can't even comprehend that's involving him as the way, the truth, and the life. And in each of these stories connecting with people, what's so fascinating with, with Jesus is over here, he has dinner with Pharisees and Sadducees. And then over here, he has dinners with the sinners. And both sides want him to pick. Both sides want him to land where they are and give them what they need to feel good about who they are and throw the rocks at the other side. <coughs> and instead, he stands right here because of his identity in the Father. He stands right here and he offers life to both of them. He offers a new way to both of them. He offers a new understanding of the truth to both of them. And he doesn't let either of them pull either way because he is very confident of who he is. In fact, he tells us in John 5, 18 through 20, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. It goes on in 530 to say, 
I can do nothing on my own initiative. See, Jesus knew where the power, the source of his way, truth, and life came from. It was from the Father. And it was only because of the Father that he was able to do what he was doing. It was because of who he was in the Father as the Son. And then he tells us the same thing in John chapter 16, verse 7. Because we want to do what Jesus does. He, he tells us that's why we're here. And we want to be able to be a part of what he's a part of. In John chapter 16, verse 7, he tells us the only way that is possible. It's so important for us to hear this. I tell you the truth. So it starts the same way as the last passage. Truly, truly. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Man, that must have been some weird words to hear for the disciples. Why is it good that you go away? We've seen you walk on water and raise dead people to life. And he says, I know, it's pretty cool stuff, but I got to go. Because when I go, he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will be with you. And then in verse, um, I'm sorry, in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. Sounds like that last passage, right? But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. See, the same thing. The initiative is from the Father for Jesus. The initiative for us is from the Holy Spirit from Jesus from the Father. That is the pathway for us to be an engaging people who are able to understand the life that we have in fact received ourselves. So that's part of the inside job of this whole thing is allowing ourselves to understand the ways we have been redeemed and are being redeemed Right? Because sanctification is you are sanctified and you are being sanctified. You've been saved and you are being given life. And so the more that we can experience that in our own stories, the more that we can realize the dark places of our story that have been redeemed by him, then the more I'm going to be able to offer life to someone else. And see, my story is not your story. Nor is it your story or your story or yours, which is why it's so good to know your story. Who were you? What happened? How did you get here? How has the gospel brought you life? Not because you've arrived and you're done and you're finished and, and you're a, a saint in the museum, but because you're a person who is sick, who went to the hospital and is getting well and experiencing life and wants other people to know about this place these people whom they're around that are bringing life. It's an inside job. It's inside me in the work of the Holy Spirit, just like for Jesus it was the Father's initiative, but it's also inside me in who I am. All those songs we sang, my identity being remade, but also my story not being wasted. God using my story so that I can engage others in a way that I just, you might not be able to. See, I thought when I came back to the Lord after living in the world for quite a while, I thought I was supposed to like pencil eraser that those like 10 to 15 years of my life. 
And it was only over years of ministry, including the learning how to not be a doer, but a beer, that I realized that my story actually is a part of the ministry I do. And now I sit across from people, and because of where I've been and, and what I've been through and what God's redeemed, I'm able to s- connect with people in a different way. But that doesn't mean you should be like me. That means you should be you. And then if you're you, and you're you, and your story is yours, and your story is yours, but together, now we truly are an engaging people who have experienced life who are able to engage others in the world and offer them life. It truly is an inside job, inside relationship. The great commandment, love God, love others as yourself. It's all a part of it. Love one another. This will be the way the world knows you are my disciples. And then this idea that we're not only to love one another, but we're supposed to love even our enemies. We're supposed to have eaten such good smelling pizza that everyone who walks by us says, whoa, where did you get that pizza? And we're able to go, oh man, you, you gotta have some. It's amazing. Does it mean I'm perfect? No, I hope not, because I'm not. I can tell you that. I don't do it perfectly. I don't be it perfectly. Ask my family but we're not supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to be an in-process people who are engaging one another and others with life and with love because that's the root of it all. And so this knowing of God and knowing of myself is what allows me to engage others more fully. There's always the external, but it comes from the internal, and it's so important for us to remember that order John Calvin, in the opening of his Institute's work, has this quote, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. It's such a beautiful picture Calvin is painting before he goes into this lengthy work about the mystery of it all and that you can't deny yourself in the attempt of pursuing knowledge of God because God wants to reveal himself through who you are. That they're so interwoven for us. In fact, that's what the mystics thought, that this experience of Jesus alive in us is so important. Communion with him is what allows us to go into the world and offer light and life and love. Well, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I'm a big fan of music, and sometimes music is worth a thousand pictures. Maybe, I don't know, but I like that phrase. But here's the deal, I love music, music's a big deal in our family, and I am 45 years old, and so that means I am literally the poster child of Gen X. We were the angsty, flannel-wearing, jumping off of stuff, smashing things, kids. And there were lots of reasons, and that's a whole other sermon, but one of my favorite bands was Pearl Jam. It's one of the ways, yeah, you can clap, you should. They're great. Everyone else is going, this is terrible, where is this going? So there's a reason. Uh, I loved Pearl Jam, and I knew I was going to marry my wife, because when we met, she loved Pearl Jam. And she loves Pearl Jam so much, she has a t-shirt I bought her that says, Uh, It doesn't get any better than this. (laughs) My kids all know Pearl Jam. Um, But sometimes the world 
And we would say, because of the Imago Dei, right? Everyone is made in the image of God. They all have his thumbprint, right? Sometimes the world does a better job of painting a picture than, than we can. And I think it's because their humanity is longing for and believing some of the very same things we do. They just don't have the same um, way to understand it. And that maybe is our job. You know? So listen to the words of this song because Eddie Vedder is wrestling with who he is and where he's been and what he's done. But he's also realizing that all of that is for some other purpose that is bigger than him. The name of the song is Inside Job.
How's that for engaging? That's engaging. Woo! Man. Did y'all hear those words? I will not shut the doors on my past just for today I'm free. I will not lose my faith. Pursuing the greater way for all human light. I will not lose my faith to be a human light again, to shine a human light today. Man, we have a name for that. It's the gospel alive in his people. Amen. It's the only hope any of us have. But because we have it, man, we got to be the kind of people who can engage others in a way that makes them go, oh, that pizza smells good. Y'all are going to go get some pizza after this. So why is it so hard? Well, here's a couple of things. Remember, I'm also a counselor. Um, and so there's a couple reasons this is challenging for us. J.D. Walt, who's a professor at Asbury Seminary, I love his Seedbed, which is a daily writing devotional. I read him and I read Richard Rohr, Center for Action and Contemplation, daily readings. Um, they're both in this. Uh, J.D. Walt recently did a, a devotional, and the title of it was The Difference Between Being a Witness and Witnessing. See, being a witness, be, is very different than the doing of witnessing. And so he talks about in this devotional the difference. It's really what I even think Eddie Vedder was singing about in that song. He's talking about being a light, which is different than doing the business of telling people that there is a light. And that's kind of what J.D. Walt's talking about, right? So being a witness, if you think about it from a, from a court drama standpoint, right? The reason I'm a witness is because I was somewhere in space and time and something happened around me that has affected me in such a way that I'll never be the same. I really won't, right? You can't unsee what you saw. You can't unexperience what you had experienced, which is why it's so traumatic. But that's what being a witness is. So you come into court and you tell them, this is what it was like to be there and what I saw and what happened. And this is the picture we're actually being given in the New Testament. We're being a witness to what has happened, not only in us, but in the people around us, the people who smell like good pizza. We're being a witness to something that is true for us. It has changed us. We'll never be the same because of it. That's what we're being a witness to. Now, doing witnessing is going out and telling someone about something you heard happen to somebody one time. Remember, like, your, your roommate's boyfriend's cousin's neighbor's aunt? Like, man, her, she's super alive. She eats really good pizza, I heard. Right? It's very different than being the witness yourself. Now, doing witnessing is still a part of it, right? So we don't, we don't want to swing the pendulum the other way and say, we're only going to be a being church. No, 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 no. That, the graphic that Matt gave us is that we want to be the kind of people who are experiencing all three of what Jesus says he is. The way, the doing, the truth, the believing, the thinking, and the life, the being part of it. And then we want to be able to engage others with that. But it's hard, right? I'm, I'm a counselor who used to be a doer who didn't know how to sit with anyone. It's so funny. My kids laugh because I'll sometimes say the hardest part of my job as a pastor and as a counselor is people. If it weren't for the people, it would be so easy. I'm just being honest with you. But I have learned some skills that help me be a better listener along the way. 
that'll help me engage someone in a different way. So I'm going to share a couple of them with you, right? So research, read a couple of different research papers, show that uh, across the board, everybody thinks they're a better listener than they really are. Everyone considers themselves about a 60% retention rate listener, somewhere between 40 and 60. You know what everybody really tests at? In all the studies, it comes back about the same, 20 to 25% retention rate. And that's men and women wives, because I know you're like, yeah, I knew he wasn't listening that well. <laughs> no, but that's men and women. 20 to 25% retention rate. Now, here's what's fascinating. They've done this same kind of research on children. Children consistently come back 90% retention rate, which for any of you who have young children, like I know you're thinking, not my kids. <laughs> but no, that just validates what's actually happened. They totally hear me. They're just choosing not to respond to what I'm saying. Uh, but the research shows 90% retention rate. And so they started to wonder, why is that true? And they've come up with a theory. And it's because children's brains are not fully developed. That doesn't happen until you're around 18 to 25, right? So all the wires haven't fully connected yet. Well, because of that, see, like our adult brains are capable of processing four to 500 words a minute but most people only talk 100 to 125 words a minute. And so your brain basically has all this other capacity and energy, and so it starts thinking about the public's you know, shopping list, or like most of you, where are we going for lunch after this? Did we make reservations? Who's gonna cut the lawn? And then you're still looking at the person you're talking to and going, yeah, yeah, that, wow, that sounds really hard. <laughs> and you don't know what they said, right? So I, I tell you this research to just simply say, maybe one of the ways we can lay down our life, as it says in John 15, uh, for our brother, is to try and be better listeners when we're engaged with them. I know that's not what that passage means, but, but maybe it's one of the ways we can attempt to do that for the person we're sitting across from. We can learn how to see them, how to hear them, how to let them know that what they're talking about matters to us. I, it matters to me that you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Ephesians 5.21 says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's it like to, to not be formulating a response when you're talking to another person, but to allow yourself to just be with them, to offer your withness, right, your presence to them, to look them in the eyes. 80% of communication is nonverbal. Right? It's the way that we sit. It's the way that we react as we're hearing. Remember, if you were here when I preached about a month ago on Psalm 88, the darkest psalm, um, I talked about a book called The Way of Suffering. And in the book, there are these three postures when we're confronted with someone else's pain. One is we stay inside of our house and yell, I'm so sorry, that sounds terrible. And the second one is where we kind of go to the front door and we kind of keep one foot in our house and one foot outside and kind of like throw sandwiches to the person who's hurting and hope they get better. The third one is to do what Jesus did in the incarnation, which remember, Emmanuel, God with us, he went and he sat with the person in their suffering. He stays himself, so your identity is very important. I stay me, I am okay, but I'm also okay with the fact that you're not okay, and I will be with you in that. And we use some different techniques to help us do that, right? So in counseling, one of the biggest things we learn that's so important and it's crazy to watch the impact it has on people is validation. When someone's telling you something, to just look them in the eyes and go, wow, that would be so hard. 
I can't imagine. I can see how upset you are. You don't even necessarily have to agree, right? Because validation is not the same as agreement. Validation is just validating what it seems like their experience of being alive is like, that they're sharing with you. And man, I'm telling you, it's like some ninja stuff in the counseling room. It can happen in Panera when you're talking to somebody. Just the validation to them. That seems really hard. Another one that's so important, restatement, telling them back what you heard. So if I heard you right, it sounds like what you're saying is da 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 And the person will be like, oh my gosh, you heard me. Because they're so used to not being heard. As are you, as am I. Because of the statistics I already read, most of us aren't very good at this. And so what if we're the kind of people who engage people differently? And that's one of the ways that they feel seen, heard, and known and they enter in. Effective listening is actively absorbing the information given to you by a speaker, showing that you are listening and interested, and providing feedback so they know you hear them. Effective listeners show the people speaking that they have been heard and understood. Reflecting and probing versus giving advice or deflecting, which is what we tend to do. So what's it like to be the kind of people who engage people differently? In engagement, I was talking to my friend Cameron, who's a philosophy major. This is what you do. We sit on the back porch. He's actually the one who gave me that book, The Way of Suffering. Um, and we were talking about engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And he said, it sounds a lot like gift giving. And there are these two writers, Miller and Hyde, these philosophers who talk about true gift giving is a gift can only be given if there's nothing expected in return. And I hope that's one of the things you hear today, is that if we're going to be a people who are engaging others to be fully alive in Jesus, don't do it for yourself. Don't make it about you. Make it truly a gift that you just freely give it to them. And they do with it what they will, because that's kind of what Jesus did. He didn't need anything from anybody. And so he just came and gave the gift to us of life. There's a great quote from Abba Isidore of Pelusia, a fifth century uh, mystic, a desert mother, in the desert father and mother um, groupings, time frame. They left Rome as Christianity became the national religion, and they retreated to the desert to try and stay true to the faith of being like Jesus. They wanted to be like Jesus and not be like a religion. And so this is the quote, to live without speaking is better than to speak without living. For the former who lives rightly does good even by his silence, but the latter does no good even when he speaks. When words and life correspond to one another, they are together the whole of philosophy. I think this was ended up being paraphrased by Francis of Assisi years later, spread the gospel and use words only if necessary. You do have to use words. The truth is important. There is a way, there are things to do, but it is rooted in who we are. To become one with God in our own self, experiencing the life of God, but then to allow him to work in, around, and through us in concentric circles, right? So it's, it's in me, there's life. It's in my, in my particular situation, me and my wife's marriage, that there's life. Then it's in, in our family that there's life. And then in our community that there's life. And then our neighborhood and our workplace, it flows out 
It's an inside-out job for us to be fully alive and offered to someone else. We can't give it away if we haven't experienced it ourselves.